The euro is crashing, fears of the dollar crumbling, and hyperinflation in Zimbabwe. But amongst all this, one currency is surging in value. What is Bitcoin? How does it work? And what is its future? You're listening to Upset Patterns. We have a special guest for today's topic. Here to talk with us today about Bitcoin is Dr. William Luther, an assistant professor of economics at Kenyon College. He earned his PhD from George Mason University. Dr. Luther, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So why don't we just get right into it. What are the basic mechanisms for how Bitcoin works? It seems it's very intangible currency because you're dealing with computers. Um, What are some of the logistics behind it? Right. Well, on the user end, it looks a lot like uh, an electronic um, bank transfer or a a PayPal payment, if you're familiar with that. Um, You're just transferring a balance of currency uh, from one user to another. Behind the scenes, though, that's actually where Bitcoin is much more interesting. Um, If you think about traditional ways of making payments, like using cash, uh, it's, it's very obvious to see, one, that I have a balance of cash that I'm about to hand over to you. And it's uh, also easy for you to confirm that I have handed it over to you and that I no longer have it. That's useful because if I, if I still had that while you have that balance of cash as well, then we would both be spending that same balance of cash. So that probably wouldn't be that great. Um, and so with, with any digital currency, really, and this is the, the problem you have to overcome because unlike cash, um, when I transfer an electronic file to you, you can't be sure, absent some um, protocol, that I no longer have that electronic file. Um, now, traditional banks have dealt with this problem uh, via a, a central clearinghouse mechanism. So if you write a check to me, say, Uh, and we bank at the same bank, well, then they debit your account and credit my account. So that bank clears the transaction. Um, And so in the U.S., we have uh, organizations like Fedwire and and Chips that that clear these sorts of transactions. Um, Bitcoin, rather than using a central clearinghouse, uh, they actually have a decentralized payment processing system. And so... Uh, at the heart of Bitcoin is a public record of all past transactions called the blockchain. And this is, just as it sounds, uh, a record that tells you basically every transaction that's ever been made with Bitcoin. And so starting with the blockchain, we can see who has what balance of Bitcoin. Uh, and therefore, we can see who is able to transfer Bitcoin from their account. Now, when you want to make a transaction, you're effectively announcing to the rest of the system that you have a, a, a balance of Bitcoin and you want to transfer this Bitcoin to someone else. And so uh, roughly every 10 minutes, these transactions uh, are, are bounded together in a block and all of the other peers on the system um, begin to try to solve a complicated cryptography problem to, to confirm this block of transactions. Um, now, it's, uh, it's difficult to solve this cryptography problem, and that's a, that's a good thing, actually, 
because if it were easy to solve this cryptography problem, then you could effectively confirm your own transactions. And so that wouldn't provide any safeguard at all. Um, but by making it difficult, it uh, basically reduces the odds that you confirm any transaction to um, some random probability that's proportional to your computing power. So, so that if, if you, uh, as long as no one has a majority of computing power on the system, that means that it's uh, effectively random. You're, you're not going to be um, confirming your own transactions. Uh, at least that's, the odds are against it. Talk a little bit about mining. You know, where do these bitcoins come from? Um, obviously, when it's a digital currency and it's it's not intangible like paper, or n no one, like a central bank, is printing it. What's the source of it, or how do you? What's the initial acquisition of a bitcoin in the bitcoin universe? Yeah, well, uh, since tr uh, processing these transactions is costly, you're going to have to incentivize people to do that. And so the way Bitcoin, way that the way the Bitcoin system has chosen to do that, at least in the early stages, uh, is to generate new Bitcoin when a batch of transactions are processed. And so if you're the first person to solve that cryptography problem, uh, you're going to be awarded new Bitcoin that's never existed before. What What do you think of that? You know, sort of rewarding, um, you know, people. People are made available this resource through mining, um, through solving a, a cryptography problem, rather than, I don't know, um, you know, is that the way to, to earn money? I, I guess it's somewhat as arbitrary as showing up in California and getting gold, um, but it, it is sort of odd, I think, to some people that some people are obtaining these bitcoins without doing necessarily any hard-earned labor. Well, you know, you don't just show up in California and, and get gold. You have to you know, put in a lot of work. And it's, it's really the same with Bitcoin. You know, a lot of these Bitcoin miners are spending a lot of time and energy setting up their, their rigs and making sure that they're, you know, working properly and that they're cooled appropriately. And, um, and you know, they're providing a valuable service to other users of Bitcoin. They're processing their transactions. And in doing so, they're ensuring uh, some level of... of uh, fraud prevention on the system um, because, as I mentioned, this um, prevents you from double spending. So um, I'm, not a, I'm not an ethicist, so I don't right. know whether you, you should earn this or you shouldn't earn this, but as an economist, I can, you know, I can explain it. It seems um, you, know, you have to provide some incentive to get people to process these transactions. Yeah, and, and it's sort of hard to think of a, you know, a foolproof 100% everyone feels good about it, uh, way of the initial acquisition. So I guess, you know, for the time being, it, it makes sense. If it's something that you that you are comfortable with, um, you'll be happy to know that in the year 2141, no more Bitcoin will be generated. And so at that point, and, and actually uh, quite a while before that, because um, the new Bitcoin created, uh, that reward gets smaller and smaller. And so it is effectively zero long before it's actually zero. Uh, so at that point... The system um, will rely exclusively on transaction fees, and so that'll just be balances that you'll tack on to the end of your uh, transactions as a reward to the first person who processes the, the batch of transactions. One thing that I think a lot of people struggle with grasping is the, the liquidity of Bitcoin, because with paper currency, if I go to a coffee shop and I want to buy a cup of coffee, it's... It's very easy. It's what we're used to to hand over a few dollar bills. 
Um, and of course, we all deal with electronic payments, with bills, or you know, most financial payments are are through electronic uh, systems. But if Bitcoin is to really compete with fiat currency, um, will everyone need a smartphone or a computer? Like, is there is there any way for Bitcoin to can you see it becoming a part of everyday life, given that it is just this this virtual thing? Well, there you know there are some Bitcoin ATMs. Um, there aren't a lot of them, um, but uh, I actually think that the the fact that you you need a smartphone or a tablet to to make these transactions, I would actually see that as a feature, not a bug. Uh, so when I leave the house in the morning, I you know I'm picking up my phone and my wallet, and I've got these cards. And it, it would be great if I could just take one device uh, and eliminate all of that, that hassle. And so if, uh, if we lived in a world where digital currencies were widely ex- accepted and I could just rely exclusively on my e-wallet, that would be a huge convenience. Um, and so, I, yeah, I tend to see that as a, as a feature, not a bug. I, I agree with that. I, I think it is true. Uh, I, I hate having to carry around several you know, different cards or gift cards and then... On top of that, my phone and some cash that can be lost or takes up a lot of space. So it does seem like a positive aspect of it, of, of anything. A lot of merchants, um, especially in Ohio, where you know where I'm uh, from, um, are are transitioning actually to 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 using tablets at the checkout as opposed to um, traditional uh, card readers. So uh, I, I think that the a lot of the infrastructure is already in place um, for any digital currency. So the, the costs of, of switching, the narrow costs of switching are probably quite low. After a few years of Bitcoin sort of being stagnant in terms of growth and not really taking off in the last, I'd say, year and a half, two years, it's just exploded um, in interest. And some, some of the, the fans of Bitcoin think um, this is a sign that people are distrusting central banks. Um, you know, the Federal Reserve just prints this money and... It's a way of rewarding bankers or allowing the government to print lots of debt and it makes all of our wealth uh, less valuable. So what, what do you see as the reasons for, for it exploding in this interest in the last couple of years? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a very interesting question. I think uh, certainly in the early stages of Bitcoin, um, demand was really driven by, by two broad groups. And so the, the first group you might think of as uh, futurists or techno utopians, and uh, these are people who just um, they wanted to uh, accept or or hold Bitcoin because it was the the latest and greatest thing, right? It was this new kind of peculiar digital money, um, and so by accepting it, perhaps they felt that they could experience a bit of the future today. Um, and so the other broad category of, of acceptors in the early stages um, were, were libertarian types, anarcho-capitalist types, um, who really liked that these monies, uh, that, this, that these cryptocurrencies weren't backed um, by any sort of government. So Bitcoin was the, the first uh, big cryptocurrency. Um, and so by accepting that, they could express perhaps their, their distrust or their dislike of, of governments more generally. Um, but those groups tend to be quite small. And so how you get from these small groups to the, to the somewhat larger, I wouldn't say widespread, but, um, but there's certainly no denying that, 
that Bitcoin is a is a, a, a widely recognized um, thing at this point. How how you get from those small uh, from that small set of early adopters to um, this widespread knowledge of, of Bitcoin is an interesting question. You know, I think that perhaps the first big jump for Bitcoin was around the time of the Cyprus bailouts. Um, I know when when news uh, broke that um, there was going to be this Cyprus bailout, what you saw were downloads of, of Bitcoin apps um, really shot up in countries like countries like Spain, countries where uh, it was reasonable to think that uh, another bailout might be on the way. Um, they were they were looking for an alternative to, you know, the the uncertain euro and and want to take their money, put their money into something that wasn't you know being controlled by these clearly inept governments. Yeah, I think that was probably the sense that they, you know, they they hadn't thought about looking for an alternative before, and now that uh, there was a big um, significant event that challenged their preconceptions, they started looking around for alternatives, and Bitcoin just happened to be the alternative that was present. Now, my main um, hesitation with sort of accepting Bitcoin as this legitimate force is that I guess I see a lot of this explosion in value as a bit of a, a bubble, a speculative bubble where people keep buying it because they see it's going up in value and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, and at some point... Um, it's just going to burst. And I think that ties into whether you think Bitcoin, the nature of it can survive or not. And obviously, if it can survive, um, you know, it might not be a bubble. But how likely is it, do you think, that this increase in value is just uh, people getting excited about something that it's not real in the sense that it's a resource like oil or corn? Could it just be a bubble? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of monetary economists will argue that all monies, by definition, are, are bubbles because they're trading at a price that's above their fundamental value. But the question really is whether or not this uh, monetary value of Bitcoin is going to be relatively stable, that is whether people are going to continue to accept it uh, in exchange in the future. Um, and so really, I think what we want to consider is what's driving the volatility of the price uh, of, of Bitcoin. Um, now, there's no doubt that there's speculation going on, but to some extent, all action is speculation, right? Anytime you make any decision, you have some estimate of what's going to happen in the future, and that's providing some weight to uh, the decision that you ultimately make. And so I'm not too concerned about speculation in particular. The reason that speculation with Bitcoin, I think, creates a lot of volatility is because it's just a really small market. And so you can think about tossing a rock into the ocean or uh, talking, uh, tossing the same size rock into a small bucket of water. And in the small bucket of water, it's going to create a really big splash. It's going to be awful messy. When, you know, when people get down to what the role of money is, it comes down to mainly two things. One is a medium of exchange, which means it's a way of transacting value, and I think Bitcoin does that very well. But the other one, as a unit of account of securing restoring value in labor or, or assets that we have, um, you want it to be relatively stable or predictable. And of course, you know, the U.S. or most developed countries have a, a rate of inflation that is somewhat predictable and manageable. Uh, but with the volatility of Bitcoin, you know, it can, it can fluctuate 
20, 30% over the course of a day. If I'm going to buy a pizza this morning, um, cause I will eat pizza any time of day, you know, maybe that pizza will be half as expensive in the, at night or twice as much. And don't you need a little bit more stability for it to be a workable currency? Well, I think you would probably want uh, it to be more stable if you were planning to use it as a unit of account. Um, but I don't think that most people are using it as a unit of account. So the way a lot of Bitcoin transactions work, um, that items are effectively priced in, say, dollars, and uh, either you make the conversion and find out how much Bitcoin you need to pay to satisfy the dollar price, or they'll quote the price in Bitcoin, but really all they're doing is just multiplying the, the dollar price by the exchange rate, uh, and that's uh, uh, varying throughout the day. Um, and so, yeah, I think that for a currency that has uh, volatility like Bitcoin, that it probably doesn't make for a, a great unit of account. But also, you know, I, I'm, I tend to think that money is a commonly accepted medium of exchange, and so... Um, uh, that's that's my primary concern is whether or not uh, it is facilitating transactions between individuals. Before you said the the supply of Bitcoin will cease uh, in tw- is it twenty one forty or twenty one forty one? Well, it's uh, uh, sometime in twenty one forty. Okay. I think around October is when it's uh, estimated. Uh, sorry, twenty one forty around October of twenty one forty. And so by 2141, the supply will be fixed. So in that case, um, obviously the menu of items that Bitcoin services will be going up. I assume the population will be going up. And if you have a fixed amount of Bitcoins going for a growing number of goods, that means each Bitcoin is inevitably going to become more valuable, which is a sign of deflation. And for for our listeners that don't really know how how crippling this can be, a deflationary spiral is basically... If your currency is going to be more valuable tomorrow, you're going to keep waiting to buy. And this sort of slows down the demand in the economy and a lot of the mechanisms that we count on for day-to-day uh, transactions stop. So is are, are we at risk for a deflationary spiral um, if the supply of Bitcoin is fixed? Well, I think it would be helpful if we, if we made a distinction between good deflation and bad deflation. Uh, when most people think of deflation, they're thinking about bad deflation, and uh, it's um, it's no surprise why why a lot of economists think about bad deflation. Um, you know, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz in their work, A Monetary History of the United States, they uh, made it very clear that the money supply in the U.S. Um, contracted by a third in the in the Great Depression, and that was one reason why um, the Great Depression was uh, was was so severe. And so I think that uh, we're rightly concerned about deflation because um, those experiences that are most salient to us are um, experiences of of monetary contraction um, that brings about the deflation. So that's bad deflation. But there's also good deflation, right? When when individuals figure out ways of producing more with less, prices fall. And so if um, if we become more productive, if we're able to produce more goods in general um, at a lower cost, then, then those prices will fall. And uh, there's nothing troubling about that. Um, in fact, if we try to uh, prevent prices to, from falling in that point, uh, uh, in that case, 
uh, we would probably generate some asset booms that would would certainly cause more harm than good. When you talk about the good deflation of becoming more productive, how does limiting the supply of Bitcoin I- increase our productivity? It, it seems like it's just as uh, it, it's more similar to the deflation during the Great Depression because we the the supply of the currency is not keeping up with the demand of it. Oh well, so there are a couple things that we need to think about here. One is that you know in the Great Depression there was an actual contraction of the money, and uh, to some extent that was unanticipated. And with Bitcoin, the supply of money is is definitely anticipated. You can see exactly what it's going to be within a um, a very reasonable margin of error. Um, and so, uh, all that I'm saying is that the contraction, uh, sorry, that the deflation that we would experience under a, a constant stock of money wouldn't be generated by a decrease in the supply of money, because the supply is fixed. And so, instead, it would be because of uh, increases in productivity. Now, you're right that we might have increases in the demand for money, and uh, perhaps in an ideal system, we would like for the money supply to reflect the money demand. But just because the supply of Bitcoin is fixed, uh, doesn't mean the supply of money is fixed, even if we were in a world where everyone is using Bitcoin. And so, the way you could think about this, we might we might call Bitcoin an outside money, and and banks or financial institutions uh, could presumably create inside money. That is money that is uh, backed by Bitcoin, and so perhaps they would issue uh, banknotes, like we've seen in the past. And historically, um, banks would issue notes that were, say, redeemable in gold, and so gold was functioning as an outside money, and these banknotes were functioning as inside money. And even today, when you when you deposit your your money at a bank, uh, and the bank creates a, a deposit account for you, that deposit account is an inside money that you can show up at your bank at any time and close that uh, withdrawing outside money. In our system, that would be uh, Federal Reserve notes. And so I don't see any reason why um, some financial intermediary couldn't create a Bitcoin bank, um, and you could deposit Bitcoin at that bank, and they would generate uh, inside money or deposit accounts denominated in Bitcoin. And get to that point, then those deposit uh, those deposit institutions could create more or less uh, inside money um, to satisfy the demand for money. Currency competition in the U.S. Uh, and I believe most countries is technically illegal. I can't print my own currency and have it compete with the dollar. Um, obviously, Bitcoin is a little tougher to regulate and a little tougher to define. How, how have governments around the world, especially I think in China, they've been trying to crack it down. What have, what have governments been doing to try to control Bitcoin? Yeah, so actually I would probably say that currency competition is technically legal, uh, but it's effectively illegal. So the economist uh, Kurt Schuler wrote a very interesting article a few years ago uh, asking why private banks no longer issue their own um, banknotes. And he pointed out that, uh, at least in the U.S., that this is perfectly legal. Uh, but they don't. And one, one reason why uh, a lot of uh, people think that they don't is because if they did, um, perhaps that they would get, uh, there would be some cracking down in the name of uh, counterfeiting laws. At least in the U.S., counterfeiting laws have been interpreted very broadly so that if you're, um, 
you know, if you're uh, creating some alternative currency, a few years ago there was the, the Liberty Dollar um, that uh, uh, was shut down on the grounds of counterfeiting, and they weren't—they certainly weren't claiming to be U.S. dollars. They were actually, uh, I believe, gold coins primarily um, that uh, that were offered up as an alternative to the dollar, but they were um, shut down and. Uh, and, and some of them were actually prosecuted on, on counterfeiting charges. And so even though it might be technically legal, um, in the U.S., for example, you can, you can hold alternative currencies. If you want to hold uh, you know, euro, you're, you're free to do so. Um, uh, a lot of people who are interested in these questions expect that um, if, if a private company started uh, issuing an alternative to, to the dollar, uh, on, a, on a significant scale that uh, some of these laws that perhaps weren't written to apply to this case would be used to, uh, to, to shut that down. So do you think, obviously, um, there's something very enticing about Bitcoin as a mostly anonymous currency for illegal transactions. And, and that's where I think there will always be a demand for it. But let's say Bitcoin, for whatever reason, fails to sort of catch on as, as an everyday currency. And the, like you were saying before, we're going to keep throwing a rock in a pond because it doesn't, it's not adopted in a widespread enough manner. Is it possible that Bitcoin could survive in that niche market? Or do you think, as far as the future is concerned, it's an all or nothing thing? It's sort of got to be adopted in a widespread manner or it's going to fail entirely or is or is there a middle ground um yeah i, I think that it's uh, possible that that bitcoin would um kind of linger on in some uh, niche of transactions i certainly wouldn't rule that out um but you know on the whole i'm i'm kind of skeptical that bitcoin is going to survive and, and for a couple reasons um you know to to replace the incumbent currency, so in the U.S. that would be the dollar, um, the alternative currency, one, it has to not just be better, but it has to be so much better that it warrants the costs of switching. And so uh, in, the, in the case of currencies, that means you know, changing your ATMs or changing the devices for merchants, uh, clear payments, um, even just thinking in terms of a currency, if you're going to, say, change the unit of account as well, uh, that's a that's a cost of switching that we need to keep in mind. Now, I think that those costs are relatively small, and that the much bigger concern with Bitcoin is what economists call network effects. And so, just to put it simply, uh, you're only interested in using a currency because you can spend it at some point in the future. And so that means the fewer people that are using this currency, the less likely you are to use this currency. And of course, on the other hand, that means the more people that are using um, this currency, the more likely you are to use it. And so since Bitcoin um, starts out as the, as the challenger, that means not a whole lot of people are using it. Most people are still using the, the incumbent, the U.S. dollar, um, in America at least. And so um, that's a big hurdle to overcome. Now, there, there's been some progress on that front. Uh, some companies... Um, like BitPay, for example, uh, and, and Coinbase, they have made it so that merchants can accept uh, Bitcoin without actually receiving Bitcoin. 
And so the way that works is a lot like if you were to take your debit card to, uh, you know, to say Germany and you swipe your debit card, you're actually making that uh, payment since you're using your U.S. debit card. You're making that payment in dollars, but the merchant um, is receiving that payment in, in euros. And so effectively, these companies like Coinbase and BitPay are, are doing much the same thing. They're facilitating this transaction so that merchants can accept a particular payment, say in Bitcoin, without actually having to receive Bitcoin. That payment is immediately converted to dollars and deposited into the merchant's account. And so that certainly erodes the network effect, um, but not entirely. And I think a lot of people are still dissuaded by the fact that Bitcoin has a relatively small network. Well, it looks like, you know, we, we've talked about, I think, most of the, the main topics for this. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think is important to emphasize, both just with, you know, the foundations of Bitcoin, how it's used, or where its future might lie? Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm uh, skeptical that Bitcoin is going to, to be here for the long run. Um, but I, I like Bitcoin. I think it's very interesting. And uh, I would be pleasantly surprised if it, um, if it continued to, to, to survive. Um, but I, I actually think that the, the big gain of Bitcoin, I think there are actually two big gains of Bitcoin. One is this idea of processing payment, payments in a decentralized manner. Um, you know, a lot of merchants complain about the, the, the fees that they're charged by major card companies to, to process transactions. And we've seen some challengers in this space with PayPal and Square. Um, and uh, currently, Coinbase um, is, is processing transactions in, in Bitcoin for a, a 1% fee. Uh, that's pretty low. And, and perhaps that's low because it's just much cheaper to process transactions in a decentralized way than in our traditional centralized way. And so that's an, an aspect of Bitcoin that I think is underplayed. I think most people, uh, it doesn't even cross their mind what currency they're going to use. It's such a part of everyday life. You don't think about it, its function or what alternatives might be or sort of the meaning of money. And it is an interesting idea that has thrown, I think, a lot of people for a loop. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm a monetary economist, so I'm, I'm thinking about currencies and, and media of exchange uh, all the time. But most people just take those things for granted. And, and in fact, if you if you look at the cases where they stop doing that, it's they're usually not very uh, attractive situations to find yourself in. So uh, people start thinking about what currencies to use when when there's say hyperinflation and the currency that they're that is their default just isn't functioning all that well. Uh, and so that that Bitcoin is kind of new and interesting and is doing things in a somewhat different way. Um, that's got people thinking about about alternative currencies, so and I think that's a good thing. I know there are a lot of... Bitcoin is definitely the most prominently known cryptocurrency, or at least uh, from my point of view. What are, what are some of the differences of these smaller ones? What's their advantage over Bitcoin, or perceived or, or, or otherwise? Yeah, well, there's been an explosion of uh, altcoins, um, or alternative cryptocurrencies, Primarily because it's once you have a, a few lines of code to to make Bitcoin function, it's relatively straightforward to modify that uh, to to produce some alternative cryptocurrency, and so you've seen a lot of that. Now, a lot of these 
are are novelty items, really. Uh, though even some of the novelties have have caught on. And so, if you think about something like Dogecoin, it's uh, named Dogecoin after the the popular internet meme by the name Doge. Um, <laughs> And uh, this is, you know, a lot of people are using this now to to basically make tips on the internet. So instead of giving someone a like or a, you know, a thumbs up or an upvote, uh, you just send them uh, some Dogecoin. Um, and so that's, I guess, a <laughs> that's a, a niche that yeah. this currency is is uh, serving. Um, others, so the the big ways that that these are are changed, um, the most common ways I would say, are uh, how the supply of of the cryptocurrency will behave over time, and so uh, we mentioned earlier that Bitcoin, the reward that you get for processing transactions, gets smaller and smaller through time. Um, others have have modified the level, and so perhaps there will be more Bitcoin uh, in existence um, when the supply eventually peters out. Um, I believe that's the case with Litecoin. That's a a margin on which a cryptocurrency could compete uh, if, if you think that perhaps the supply of Bitcoin is too small uh, in, in the long run, um, you might uh, modify a cryptocurrency along those lines. Uh, the other popular way of, of modifying the, the uh, underlying design here is to adjust the amount of time um, with which transactions are processed. And so with Bitcoin, uh, the, a block of transactions is uh, processed about every 10 minutes. I think with Litecoin, that's reduced to around uh, two and a half minutes. And so you can see cryptocurrencies um, competing on those margins as well. Basically, slight modifications for most of them are, in the case of others, uh, a very, very different function, and a currency as we might think of it. Yeah, that's right. Those come with different advantages and and, and disadvantages. So if we just take the example of Litecoin, where uh, transactions are processed every two and a half minutes as opposed to Bitcoin's 10 minutes, uh, on the one hand, that provides a greater resistance to double a spending uh, attacks because if transactions are processed more quickly, that means the window wherein you might spend a balance of coins the second time uh, is smaller. And so that's an attractive feature. You know, there are lots of uh, of trade-offs with anything, but uh, certainly with these cryptocurrencies. And I think that some of these altcoins have just tried to uh, make a case that their setup is is marginally better than Bitcoin. Well, in the last few days, Newsweek made a bold claim that they found Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin that a lot assumed was a pseudonym for many years. He he or she or they first started it, I think, in 2007, 2008, and haven't really been involved since 2011. And there's been a lot of argument about whether this person that Newsweek found in California, who's actually a 61-year-old man named Satoshi Nakamoto, is the real Satoshi Nakamoto. What are your thoughts on it? Has Newsweek even sabotaged themselves more, or could this be the guy? You know, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of speculation over this character is, you know, will the real Satoshi Nakamoto please stand up? I, I don't know. Um, you know, the, some popular ideas are, you know, perhaps it's one person or maybe it's a, 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 a group. To me, 
it's it's not something that I'm too concerned with. Yeah, it, it's it's really uh, a media story more than anything to do with Bitcoin. Yeah, I'd that's say. right. They it's it's kind of interesting, right? That there's this um, big question mark over the origins of of Bitcoin, um, but uh, I'm I'm just not all that informed on on uh, on those sorts of issues. My guest today has been William Luther of Kenyon College. Dr. Luther, thank you again for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. All right, tonight. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted by Will Compernell and recorded in Austin, Texas. My guest today has been William Luther of Kenyon College. One more links related to today's podcast episode? Check out facebook.com slash upsetpatterns.